So thanks for joining us today, uh, Ray DeMonico with the Manhattan Institute to talk about education policy, New York City public schools. It looks like you have uh, the, correct me if I'm wrong, the two roadblocks of mandatory masks and no virtual. Is that right? Uh, yeah, there's still, look, anything can change between right. now and uh, Labor Day, which is when the schools will open in New York. And, you know, there's already some pushing and shoving going on, but the mayor is sticking firm to his commitment to open the schools. Uh, remote learning has been really very difficult in, in New York City in the urban environment. The only uh, exception they're making to that is a pre-existing uh, program. Called, it's called uh, home instruction. This is really meant for kids who have chronic illnesses, but in this case, they're going to allow students who are immunocompromised to uh, to have this at home. In other words, a, a teacher will visit them a couple hours a week in their home and, and work with them. But we'll see how this plays out. So we have a similar thing in St. Louis and Kansas City where mandatory masks in the city and uh, they're going to continue some form of virtual schooling, but it wasn't very, you know, got up and running really fast. It didn't have a lot of uh, research behind it. So it wasn't the best uh, virtual. And in addition, I'm sure New York is similar a whole lot of kids just didn't show up, you know, yeah, exactly. enrollment is down, just enrollment, even being enrolled, but even at the kids who are enrolled, a bunch of them didn't log on. So we don't even know where they are. So the and fact that we're going into this new mandatory mask and sketchy virtual, I think is very problematic for the next school year. Yeah. It's uh, and it's the same story across the country and that enrollment's way down and it's mostly in the, in the lower grades, right? Yeah. So a little bit of that in, in urban areas, including in New York, is there has been a decline in the number of births in the last uh, couple of cohorts. So that, that's pushing this partially, but what we're waiting to see in New York is, are these uh, kids who should have been in kindergarten last year, but whose parents didn't enroll them? Uh, it's not mandatory in, in New York. So they should be showing up in first grade this year. Uh, or are these these families who've decided that New York City is not a great place to raise their children, possibly because of the problems with remote learning yeah. last year? And have they moved to the suburbs? Anecdotally, we know that the housing market is booming in the surrounding suburbs, where largely public schools have been open, at least part time. Mm -hmm. So we're waiting to see how all of this. What about charter school enrollment? Do you think that's been impacted? Uh, charter school enrollment, uh, we don't have the numbers for this year yet, but for last year, the first year of COVID, charter school enrollment uh, was up uh, in the city. That's because they, you know, they, those, those schools have been very popular and they've been growing. There's also another group of schools that's sort of unique to New York City, but in the city, we have a very large population of observant Jewish families, uh, Hasidim, the ultra-Orthodox, they were once called. There are over 100,000 kids in, in, in those types of schools in wow. like boroughs in New York City. Their enrollment uh, was up a bit last year, too. Well, I think so, we've seen general private school enrollment. And what, what I think we've seen is uh, parents are just making choices. Like, you know, legislators can say yes or no or thumbs up, thumbs down to giving parents school choice. They're just making them this year. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, parents have been creating pods and things like that. It also is clear to me that the question of whether the, a city like New York should offer 
remote learning or not is really the wrong question. The right question should be, who did it right last year? Sure. We have a sense that some private schools did it right, and we have a sense that some charter schools uh, in particular did it very well last year. And if those cases exist or there are parts of our school public school system where it's been done well, uh, the people who run the public school system in New York City should be looking into that, figuring out is it something they can do? Can they get agreements from their teachers union for the um, adjustments that are needed to do remote learning correctly? And, and if they can't get those adjustments, they should honestly, I think they should be thinking about contracting out with people who know what they're doing. I think that's right. There's a school in Florida, the Florida Virtual Instruction Program that's been around since the 90s. It's a very well-established their enrollment went up by 231,000 class enrollments. You don't have to enroll for the whole thing. But I think across the country, a lot of parents look to Florida Virtual Instruction Program as an option. They, uh, Florida was smart in how they fund this program insofar as FVIP doesn't get their funding for the student until after they've passed the class. So it isn't this sort of like virtual experiment. Uh, they have to monitor attendance and performance and then an only then do they get uh, the funding for that student, but it's treated its own as its own district. I think that's something that Missouri could and should try. But I think, you know, mostly I'd like to know your opinion on, you know, we're weeks away from school starting. We have a new variant of COVID. We have parents probably very unhappy after a very unhappy year last year. And I think your media or I see resistance on the part of teachers unions and school leadership to uh, give parents a, a set of options. Sure. So, you know, I, I refrain from uh, analyzing the data on, on the science behind this. That's not, not my training, right? The only thing you know, that, that's clear is that we have to balance a couple of concerns here. What are the health risks to students and those around them? And then what is, what, what is the known loss that has occurred in learning you know, over the long haul? And so we need a balanced approach. I think a big part of it needs to be giving parents uh, options because at the end of the day, if the parents don't feel comfortable sending their children in, they're not going to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, we just need a, a system that is very diverse in how it offers educational services. I've never been a fan of uh, remote learning, but, but my thoughts have changed. I mean, I think it's here to stay. Right. And That's I right. think I but I think it has to be done correctly. Uh, I think the teachers unions have to stop some of their opposition to remote learning. I think that's what the problem was in a lot of states and large cities last year. The unions see this as possibly you know, eating into their jobs in the future. But parents mm -hmm. are going to be demanding this. We have a number of states now in the past couple months that have past educational savings accounts that will empower parents to use the, the dollars that would be associated with state education aid and using that to buy services. Yeah, Missouri is one of those. You know, We've that, asked one this year. Not in, not in the way that some states have done like emergency grants right. related to COVID. Ours is more of a, we're probably looking down the road for a year or two before it gets implemented, but finally acknowledging that, uh, you know, I have been in school choice sort of world for 20 or more years. And I've been very consistently not having an opinion on what parents choose. 
right. just that they get to choose. So sure. I completely understand the viewpoint of a parent who doesn't want to send their young child to school to wear a mask all day. I understand that. I don't know that I would want to either. Mine are right. thankfully grown. I also understand very clearly the uh, position a parent is in who has to go and work outside the home and has to support their family and their children need to be somewhere safe. And so this virtual thing is really not a good option for them. And I guess my point is just let them pick the one that does work and not try to fit them in all into one particular mode. And I, I feel like in Missouri anyway, there's a, there's been kind of a, maybe I'm wrong, but I've been sensing that like, this is all going to be over. It's going to be behind us. We're going to get back to what schooling was like in 2018. And I just don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I wish that were the case, but uh, it, it seems to be lingering, right, with these variants and whatnot. There, is, there are some positive signs on the part of uh, teachers' unions, not yet on, uh, on the uh, remote learning thing, but on uh, vaccinations, for example. So just this weekend, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, came out and said that she personally is in favor of mandating vaccines for teachers. She takes it as a personal position, but she is the head of the the AFT. I think in some union circles, there's an understanding that they may have overplayed their hand in the last year and a half. In New York City, uh, there was an article that indicated that the teachers union is so concerned about the declining enrollment, which will affect their membership at some point. Absolutely. Uh, they've offered teachers 25 bucks an hour to go door to door, you know, encouraging parents to send their kids to school. So I think they sense that the way they handled this in the past may have driven some parents away. And let's hope that that continues, that they, they realize the need to be flexible here. At the end of the day, most kids are going to go to traditional public schools, but absolutely parents need other options. Yeah. And they've been, like I said, they've been doing it. Um, so we talked one about one group of kids that probably really got screwed over in this pandemic, which are pre-K and kindergartners. Uh, which I, again, I understand parents not wanting to start their kids. And, and I do believe that uh, it's going to be very, I guess, interesting is the word to see what it looks like when these kids do show up, if they go back and show up for kindergarten, or if they decide to show up for first grade. And, um, but the other group of students that I uh, worry about is high school students who are probably in their junior or senior year, and it kind of fell apart. And they probably got a high school diploma because pretty easy to game. Right? right. And now they're heading out, you know, I, uh, the last pandemic a hundred years ago in 1918, there's a generation that never caught up that yeah. were uh, finishing their education then. And they never caught up in terms of median earnings. And I could see that happening again. Cause I think we've lost track of a lot of high school students and we've yeah, sent I, them out there to, I don't know what. Yeah, I, I agree completely. The, the younger children were the ones who were most likely to be pulled out. However, they have a long educational career ahead of them. And so there are years to make up. I mean, if school districts are flexible, they can think about things like uh, adding time in the summer or things like that. Mm -hmm. you know, Pre-K or kindergarten, yeah, they still have 12, 12, 13 years ahead of them. So, so that can be, be dealt with, right? Um, the high school kids, you're right. My fear is that not, not only kids who kind of game the system to, to get their diploma, but in all states, you're allowed to drop out at a certain point. And so if high school wasn't open and you were a child who was overaged and undercredited, as we say, you know, a 17-year-old still looking at two, two and a half years to finish your diploma, 
wouldn't surprise me that you're out in the labor market, you know, places are paying good money now because they're having trouble finding workers. And so if you're getting 19 bucks an hour working fast food or something like that, I doubt very much you're going to be coming back. That's one of the things I, I worry about. Uh, the other group I worry about are the kids who were uh, supposed to enter high school last year. That first semester, that first year of high school is critical, particularly for lower income kids or kids generally who have not been the best students, right? Mm -hmm. The statistics tell us that kids who start failing classes in their first semester and their second semester of high school are the ones most likely to drop out. And so I'm trying to figure out what it would be like to be a kid who came out of eighth grade, out of middle school last year, the high school is not open, you don't know anyone, you don't have the social uh, you know, support around you and whatnot. And I'm afraid some of those kids may have gotten lost in the show. Yeah, um, and I've seen some things that you've written about recently about the idea of transforming the high school experience anyway. And uh, most of Missouri is rural, rural, so like most of it, almost all of it. And we still have this idea of designing high schools around uh, kids going to college and our, we have career and technical ed, but I wouldn't say that the outcomes are great. We don't get a lot of students leaving high school with um, like industry recognized credentials or that type of thing. And I did a podcast recently with Mackie Raymond of the Credo Institute at Stanford. And we talked a little bit about redoing this idea of um, seat time or Carnegie units. Like if you've had 120 days in the seat, you get to you get credit for this class, no matter what you did or didn't learn. Because right. I do think we've got a lot of students leaving high school even before the pandemic, but certainly exacerbated by the pandemic, not ready for what's next, right? Absolutely. And, and the national trends on this are not great, uh, too. This notion of college or nothing has kind of infected the educational policymaking community uh, for more than a couple decades now. I mean, it's uh, it's not ground in reality. Uh, you know, the, the data tell us that only two thirds of students who graduate high school, this is pre-pandemic, uh, enroll in, uh, in college right after high school. 44% enroll in four-year schools and 22% enroll in uh, community colleges or two-year schools. The outcomes in higher education are not great. Uh, you know, only about two thirds of the kids who enter bachelor's programs complete them within six years and, and similar numbers, even lower numbers for community colleges. So when you do the math and you look at a group of kids who graduate high school, uh, less than 40% of them today end up with a degree, right? Yeah. About, uh, uh, about uh, you know, 30 something percent, about a little less than 30% end up with a bachelor's degree right. six years after graduating high school. Right. And, and another 9% end up with an associate's degree four years after graduating high school. In both cases, we're giving them two extra years to do it. Yeah. Yet, you know, we've set this without even thinking about it, this goal has been set that the only reasonable outcome of high school is a college preparation and then eventually a college degree. This notion that there is no high school diploma that doesn't, that is, that is uh, legitimate 
that does not uh, indicate college preparation has no basis in what our history has been or what you know the experience is for most kids. So we need we need to focus a lot on that. And what should we do? Well, one thing we to start off, you know, with the, the Biden administration wants to throw a bunch of money, you know, 109, uh, $109 billion dollars to provide free community college to every student. Um, What's your thought? Uh, it's not going to work uh, because <laughs> the 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 current uh, the current uh, outcomes of community college are very very poor all across the country. Now there are states that are doing community college well. There are states that are you know are more focused on preparing kids for the world of work. I did a study in New York City, which has a very large community college system, and found that. The majority of students, more than the majority of students who enroll in our community colleges are A, low, low prepared. They're high school grades where they were sort of like C students, right? And yet when they go to community college, they end up in programs that once again are designed to transition them eventually into a four-year setting and getting a bachelor's degree. Most of them, are the, the, the biggest group of them are studying liberal arts. So you have students who were, you know, C students in high school and they get into community college and they're studying history and English and whatnot. It just doesn't make sense. And so what the, the federal government should be doing is using its, its purse, using its funding to incentivize community colleges to be sort of a place of transition for these kids for whom we know that for your college is not the answer. And so there should be more in the way of certificates uh, showing workplace competencies. Mm -hmm. Now that has been growing across the country, right? It is something that's taking hold. There are some great examples out there, but you know, in a lot of states, the focus of the community colleges is still on preparing kids for a four-year degree, and that's just not going to get it done. So yeah. we, should, we shouldn't be throwing good money after bad on that. One thing that we seem to have a lot of right now is money. Um, yeah, I, I tell people this about Missouri. Uh, we're a little bit lower than the national average. So we're about 27% of Missourians have a bachelor's degree. But the, the number I prefer to use is 73%. Do not, 73% of, of Missourians do not. And we, the people who think about these and, you know, and work on the policies often do have a college degree. And there's this, uh, it's easy to assume that everyone around you does when most of the people around you do not. It's just Absolutely. a fact. And so, you know, when we talk about jobs programs and certificate programs, like we need to keep in mind that most of our uh, 25 year olds and older don't have a bachelor's degree and, and that that's what we need to be thinking about. It's like, and in addition, like you said, um, the certificate programs, you know, fixing a car today, you're fixing a computer, right? Like these, the, you, the idea of just having your high school diploma and going out and get a decent job where you can support a family and buy a house, that's that's highly unlikely now. So to um, to move kids towards other trades or other careers that don't require bachelor's degrees just makes a whole lot of sense. And the free the free community college thing, I think, will turn into to me. It seems like uh, people who don't know what else to do, they'll go take some classes. It's free and see if anything catches fire. But I think it's not going to turn into a lot more post-secondary credentialing. Yeah, and, and you're right about the causes of a lot of this. 
when you know these policies are made at state capitals or in Washington, D.C., I've worked in government offices and I've worked in offices where everyone was very well educated, at least a master's degree, right? Like, like myself. Uh, and I, you know, for years have been saying to my colleagues in those places, you have to realize how special you are, right? Most people don't have the education that you do and it's not the norm, but they, they just don't, uh, they don't get that, you know? And so uh, that's how, you know, we, we've gotten this, uh, this problem. Now, it is true, by the way, that for people who do attain an associate's degree, they do better than kids with uh, who have That's a high right. school degree. And kids with a bachelor's degree do better, and kids with a master's degree, up until now, that might be changing, uh, do better as well. The other thing that's true, though, that gets left out of this discussion, because what the pushback against what you and I are talking about, preparing kids for the world of work, is oh, we don't want to deny kids the opportunity. We don't want to put them on a vocational track too young. That would be unfair to them. But we have a higher education system, which is incredibly open. You know, people do, some people go into the military for a couple of years. Right. They grow up, they get some resources, they figure out what they want to do with their life, and they go to college and they do well. So there's always that ability to return the college track, even if you've been working uh, in, right. in a trade or, or something like that. So that, that's a false. We're the country of the eternal second chance. Exactly um, right. yeah. uh, so right now, uh, ungodly amounts of stimulus money are being circulated. Missouri's received, I want to say, 26 billion, but for education, about three and a half billion dollars. We have 800,000 students in the whole state. That's probably less than New York City, right? You guys have a million? Say again? Yeah. How many students in New York City? A million? One, one million students in New York City. One million. And so the whole state of Missouri has 800,000. However, it's a lot of money. Um, you studied education policy for a long time and certainly education finance. So what do you think, what do you think we should be doing with all of this money? Um, I, I've said this many times, but I'm afraid that five, 10 years from now, we're going to look back and not know where any of it went. Yeah, what we, should be not no be, what, what we should not be doing, because this money has an expiration date, I think it's two or three years they're going to provide mm -hmm. us. We should not be encouraging costs that are recurring, right? So we should not be hiring more staff, right? Sure. Because uh, in uh, three years, how are we going to pay for them, right? Uh, we should be thinking almost, you know, there's all debate now about infrastructure, but I'm talking about real infrastructure, right? As we said before, uh, remote learning is probably here to stay. There might be some money that needs to be used to develop those systems and getting them working, right? The, the technology, the infrastructure, things like that, the access so families can get on the internet and do this and other types of things. We should be using this money to create innovations and be thinking about different ways to provide services. And in doing so, we should be mindful and use this money as an opportunity to create perhaps some new types of schools or other educational service providers yeah. that are more responsive to what parents and families want to deal with this diversity of expectations that parents have about schooling. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot of that has happened organically in the last year or two. Uh, YMCA's and Boys and Girls Clubs have done a great job. Uh, the, you know, 
there's a million stories, karate academies, trampoline places where kids sit and learn for three or four hours and then they go and jump on trampolines, whatever. I think there's, and parents meeting with other parents in one person's home, that type of thing. Parents have DIY'd their kids' education in so many interesting ways that I hope we capture and we encourage to go forward. And we put some real money behind that. For me, I think having at least a portion of the education funding follow the child to these uh, new places or to where their parent chooses is very important right now. Um, I agree on the staffing thing, although I think that's what's going to happen. I think if not hiring, then probably bonuses or something to that effect. But um, I do think we have a very unique opportunity right now to change some things and to really learn what we've done and create a more pluralistic system of schools. I hope it happens. Uh, New York City has some of the highest performing charter schools in the country. Certainly a couple of the best networks out there. And yet you guys are, there's been a lot of pushback against yeah, the situation. Creating more of them. The, the situation has been very dire in New York State for many, many years. We were a leader, in, in particularly in New York City, in uh, creating charter schools. That's right. Um, today's events with the governor stepping down, uh, unfortunately, probably going to make it worse because uh, for a while, when the Republicans had control of the state Senate, uh, facilitated by the uh, mutiny on the part of some moderate Democrats who voted with the Republicans. Uh, Cuomo was able to work uh, for charter schools because in New York City, the the way that state government is described is uh, three men in a row, now three people in a row, right? So it's the head of the assembly, the head of the Senate, and the governor. And so for a while, the governor was able to play both sides of that. And that's when we saw charter schools growing and even before his term. About three years ago, Republicans, for the first time in many, many decades, lost control of the Senate. So Mm. it's 100% Democratic control. Uh, There's been a wave of Democratic socialists uh, elected to the Assembly in particular. And so Cuomo being who he was, he he moved to the left a bit. bit. So we'll see what happens with with the incumbent governor in, in two weeks. But what happened after this election a couple of years back is the state refused to increase the cap on the number of charter schools in the state. That cap has been there since the law was first passed in 1999, but it had been increased a couple of times. Uh, They've even refused to do a simple fix for reasons I won't get into, just the politics of New York State. There's a separate cap for New York City and the rest of the state. So the suburbs and and upstate, more rural areas. Charter schools have not been a big deal in the rest of the state. So there are slots available under the rest of the state cap that could be used. And it's been proposed, well, why don't we let the city of New York use those, right? There are still 100,000 kids or more on waiting lists in New York Mm -hmm. City. They're doing well. And they refuse to even, uh, even do that. So we have a big battle ahead of ourselves in trying to break through this logjam in New York City. Uh, given the uprise in parent interest and in, uh, parental choice and whatnot, maybe that'll be helpful. Yep. Uh, we'll see what the new governor is up to. And then there's, there are state elections next year. So that'll be it. Um, it's so interesting to me in Missouri and Kansas City and St. Louis, the fact that Kansas City is up to almost 50% share of the student population in Kansas City attends charter schools. 
St. Louis is around 35%. As they get the number gets higher, they push back harder, which I understand in terms of competition. But as the number get, gets higher, that means to me that more people want them. And then that's when we've only done, uh, the St. Louis Public School Board's only been able to do symbolic um, decrees that they are against expanding them. They don't have real power there, but I know Mayor de Blasio has been really anti-charter school, which is so weird because like you said, a hundred thousand parents who are his constituents are trying to get their children into them. Yeah. He's so. been awful. For, he's been awful from day one on this, but fortunately his term is coming to an end. Right. Hoping that the, the new mayor who will be installed in, in January takes a more positive approach to charter schools. And that may help move the needle in, in New York City, you know, in, in a lot of places, the complaint that one hears is that charter schools and the growth of charter schools somehow harm the public schools. It, nothing can be further from the truth. There have been academic, very rigorous studies that indicate, if anything, the competition does seem to spur improvement in surrounding sure. public schools. Uh, I've documented, uh, b- before coming back to the Manhattan Institute, I worked for something akin to the it's a local version of the Congressional Budget Office called the Independent Budget Office. We looked at the financing and yes, a lot of money in New York City now flows through to charter schools because there's 120,000 students and money follows them, right? But at the same time that charter schools have been growing, the budgets and the per-pupil spending of public schools has, has risen commensurately. There's no evidence that public schools are being you know, starved of resources because of the growth growth in charter schools. In some ways, it's been a win-win, but there's, there's this uh, you know, emotional reaction and the optics and whatnot, and uh, yeah. we just have to keep pushing. You know, the, the schools are doing well. Uh, as you mentioned, one of the networks in New York City, the Success Academy, serving all lower-income children of color in the poorest neighborhoods in the city, their test scores on the state test outperform the most affluent suburbs. It's unbelievable. In New York State. It's just, you know, no one else does that. No, it's unbelievable. And a few others, Achievement First. I mean, you have some very high-performing charter school networks that were allowed to grow there and, um, you know, that lots of parents would want to be able to access if possible. And I know the networks want to grow. So it's, uh, it's really too bad. But I do think parents are more activated now than they were a year and a half ago. And I think parents, you know, who have had a front row seat and watched their kids learn all day long have a lot more information now. And so I I do think that we'll see more demand on the part of parents for options, especially in the next week or two when they find out whether their child has to wear a mask or not uh, or can't go to school or not. Um, I think it's again, it's it's I think we thought it was settled. Now it's not settled. But I really appreciate you coming to talk to me about it and talk to us at the Shomi Institute. Uh any I think education policy is just a, an incredibly interesting field right now. So I, I love getting thoughts from other places and other folks in the same business. So I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me.